This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we support design engineers and make lightning protection easy. You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. All right, welcome back to the Struck Aerospace Engineering Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's episode, we've got a bunch to talk about uh, with Boeing. So some news from Ryanair, uh, calling them out again about costs, uh, a lawsuit against Boeing's board, and of course, the uh, upcoming criminal indictment of one of the test pilots from the Boeing 737 MAX um, program. So a lot of stuff to discuss on Boeing. We'll also talk a little bit about uh, sustainable airline fuel. British Airways completed their first flight with SAF, and Chevron and Jivo are announcing that they're going to jointly invest in SAF. And then lastly, we'll talk about Lilium and some of the uh, flying taxi future. So hubs and LA gearing up to become the first city in the U.S. to operate air taxis. Uh, so, Alan, let's start with Boeing and Ryanair. Um, you know, we talked about Ryanair kind of having it out with them in the public forum about price, and they're doing this again. Uh, for some reason, Michael O'Leary, the CEO of Ryanair Group, basically is like, yeah, if you know, Boeing doesn't want to sell us 737s for our, our price, then uh, the A320 is going to become the low-cost uh, aircraft of choice for low uh, low-cost airlines in Europe. So... Um, what do you think of this tactic? Is this just more of them pressing them for a, a price cut? It sounds like they really actually want Boeing. If they didn't want Boeing aircraft, they wouldn't be bothering to take this. They know what kind of pain it's involved in so switching into another set of airplanes, right? And different manufacturer, all the whole the infrastructure of the airline will change tremendously when they do that, or if they do it. Right? So you're really hoping that Boeing will, will give a little and you can work out a negotiation. I think... In normal situations, these are all these conversations happen in in closed rooms, and you just don't hear about them publicly. But Boeing's in a little bit of a vulnerable situation, and uh, some of these low cost airlines and their executives <laughs> know how to use the media to their fullest effect. And uh, news periods kind of slow, so this kind of these kind of stories will percolate up, particularly in the business world. I just don't know if that's a smart move for. Ryanair in the long term, you know, you you gotta find a way to get to a middle ground and uh, to keep your airline afloat. Because you don't want Boeing not helping you either. If you have a bunch of Boeing airplanes and Boeing decides to not help you or make it difficult, they can make your life really hard. That's that's the the total of it. So both sides need to sort of calm down a little bit and try to find a a happy medium. I think Boeing is also a little worried on uh, my, my guess is that Boeing's worried at whether Ryanair can actually pay the bill or not. Right. So it's one thing if you can get secure payment and get the thing done. Uh, but it's another, if a client is risky, a customer is risky, do you bend over and, and give them everything that they want and then have to eat the, the, the risk also that they may not pay, right. Or they're going to cancel on you and not, reimburse you for all that right so there's 
there's a lot of moving pieces to these negotiations. Don't don't you just kind of feel that that that's what's happening? There's just a lot of moving parts right now. Yeah, it also just seems like some some saltiness because it, this this commentary came in response to a, a Reuters article that um, essentially quoted a Boeing executor or executive who said, "Yeah, you know, low cost carriers is going to be an area of growth." And he's like, "No, it's not. Not unless you cut us a deal." Basically, his his comments, but. Yeah, it seems complicated because obviously if you're the premium product and it sounds like I'm sure Boeing holds itself in that esteem and it sounds like a lot of aircraft carriers too, obviously though, you know, Airbus makes great airplanes, but there's a reason they want Boeing's, I suppose, in at least this case, but if you call yourself a premium product, you don't really want to discount it. You know, Apple doesn't discount their stuff hardly at all. And people complain about it on Black Friday. They're like, why can't I get an iPhone for 30% off? Like, come on. And they're like, nah, because you're going to buy it anyway. Too bad. So, yeah, that's true. And they're not wrong. Yeah, so that's true. And, and maybe maybe Boeing's also realizing that, that they should stop negotiating with these companies and realize that they're, they're going to buy them or not. And, and they're, they're, it's the same result at the end of the day, you know, and just a lot less stress, too, from Boeing's standpoint, not to get into these fights. Here's our price. Here it is. Yeah. And pricing structure for different products is you know, you can't compare necessarily one product to another, but if you have to sell 90 planes to make the same amount of revenue as a hundred planes, because you didn't discount them, maybe that's not a big deal. Like if you're making your profit margin, do you need to move more planes or can you just move less, but more expensive planes? You know, the same, same amount of revenue, the same amount of revenue. So if you don't want to discount it and you want to make more per plane and sell less planes, then maybe that's, that's their business's plan. I don't know. So moving on, uh, Boeing's uh, board is now going to be facing a lawsuit. It sounds like that a Delaware judge said the company's board has to face a lawsuit by shareholders over the two 737 MAX uh, crashes. And that basically um, the judge is allowing it because they're saying that the, the board allowed um, Boeing to go ahead, prioritizing rapid production and profit over oversight. Alan, how do you feel about this? Uh, this this ruling it doesn't mean they're going to lose the lawsuit it just means that it can proceed to the next step yeah so these these early uh, judgments really are not indicative of what the final outcome will be it's just a, one of the gates to say it's not so outrageous that i want to toss it right right it's it, it has some foundations in law so they sort of have to let it go through to the next level i don't think this is going to go anywhere just because the issues that Boeing is having is sort of way down the chain. You know, whether they increase production or not, the, the the rate increases do not come with a discussion in the boardroom of, well, you know, it's going to decrease safety, <laughs> but we're going to make more money. You want to vote on that? That's not that's not the that's not what they're doing, right? What they're doing is they're saying we need to we need to pour in a hundred million dollars to increase production. Can we spend the money to do that? That's the discussion at the boardroom level. There's an implied safety factor that goes into all of this. So I, I, to, to say that the board members have any real say in safety um, at the at the discrete level at which it occurs is just non-existent. So I, I I don't think this goes very far. Yeah, you can't like like you said you can't imagine there being like, hey, this we're should we do this new thing that's definitely gonna definitely gonna decrease safety. And they all vote for it. Like, no, like you said, there's just going to be implied that, yeah, let's push, let's push, let's push. Assuming that 
safety just continues to remain because there are tons and tons of safety checks. But yeah, this is just an unfortunate situation. Yeah, with the with the crashes, a lot of lot of finger pointing, a lot of blame. But you're right, I'm not sure how that how it ends up coming to to be proven in court that there was some sort of negligence that that they're going to be able to get something out of this board. Yeah. So, so moving on, this is the, the big piece of news at the moment is that um, Seattle Times and others are reporting that the uh, criminal indictment of a former Boeing 737 MAX test pilot is imminent and that um, there's been a grand jury and they're going to be announcing criminal prosecution uh, pretty soon. So um, Mark Forkner, who is the former 737 chief technical pilot, um, they're saying he deceived FAA regulators about, you know, the new flight control system, the MCAS, uh, on the 737 MAX. So, Alan, there's a lot of layers to this situation. You and I talked about it at length uh, before going live here. Um, but what do people need to know about this, and why is it maybe a little more complicated than what you might read on the surface? The, uh, a news article has to simplify it to tell a story, right? So there's got uh, to be to to get articles out and to, to try to explain it, they have to simplify it and remove a lot of the complexities and details that are going to come out in a courtroom. So what it, you know, what it is frame like, and I'm sure the uh, prosecuting attorneys and their staff are putting out a narrative, which is saying one thing and the defense side is going to obviously say something else, but the narrative kind of goes like this. You got a hotshot pilot who's shooting off his mouth to the FAA and lying to the FAA, intentionally lying onto the FAA so Boeing could certify an unsafe aircraft. That's the sum. That's the sum of what the article, and what the what not so much the article, but that's what the attorneys are kind of implying, and uh, that's the way this this article sort of reads. I think there's a lot of steps in there which are going to have a hard time proving, and uh, and no aircraft program is there one person that's signing off on safety there are usually a dozen or more that are signing off on different aspects of of a particular system in terms of safety did everybody in boeing uh withhold information to the faa i find that hard to believe i find there's just just too many too many different individuals involved in it that something like that would go on uh, the, I think the key here is that it, the criminality aspect is a, is a new wrinkle. So uh, to put someone in that uh, who's, who's doing a, essentially an engineering function, uh, flight test pilots are essentially engineers that describe the performance of the aircraft and show that a, a capable pilot can operate the thing and that the aircraft operates within the requirements of the FAA and EASA and every other regulatory body to say that they maliciously led or misled the FAA is, is that, that one person had the control over all of that is going to be really hard to prove. So I, I think there's a lot of competent people. What it appears like there's a lot of competent people that um, had looked at the safety aspect of the system and determine that it met the FAA requirements. And I would assume that there's paperwork that says that. And the FAA has not disputed that the, the, that, uh, the safety assessments and the safety aspects weren't addressed properly. That, that's not what anybody's saying. And I think the FAA is saying that uh, the system as it, is, as it was intended, the way that the FAA was interfacing with Boeing, was a valid system. They really haven't changed that. 
the core of it. They may have changed some of the, the functionality of it, but the core of it still remains. So if you're in a courtroom and you're trying to convict one person involved in this sort of multivariable, multi-people, people involved around the world, and assign blame to one particular person, and that is going to be damn near impossible. But for whatever reason, they think this is a good approach. And I, I think there's some outlying consequences to this. Let's just say that, let's just, let's just take for granted that the emails and things that were written by the flight test pilot were out of bounds, not professional. Let's just go to sort of not professional. We shouldn't be, shouldn't have ever been written. And maybe some of the more braggadocio things that were done were inappropriate. Well, I'll, I'll give you that. Sure. Uh, but if you start putting safety engineers or uh, designated engineers from the FAA in prison, you're going to have a hard time finding people to do that job. Because in, in, a lot of accidents happen because of pilot error and mechanical breakage. Not Rarely does it happen because of design. So to put yourself at risk to take that job for the extra thousand bucks or whatever your employer wants to throw at you isn't worth it. Just not worth it. I think they're going to have a hard time finding people to do that job without a lot of concessions. Like I'm not going to be held criminally liable to do this thing. <laughs> right? I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, uh, I'm not a scapegoat for my employer, which is what it's going to feel like. And I think that's probably what a lot of of uh, employees of an airplane company would think of that. That, 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 and I know a lot of, I personally know a lot of people who are extremely competent do not take on the designated engineering role just because of that risk. They're afraid if an airplane crashes that they're going to get sued and or be convicted criminally. And for the most part, I don't know if there has been a previous case where that's happened. So this would be a new, this is opening up a new territory that. Uh, there may be some unintended consequences here. Have, have we not uh, sort of de destroyed this guy's livelihood forever already? Probably have. Uh, do we need to put him in prison and there, therefore, you know, to most likely decrease the safety of future airplanes? I don't, I don't think that's smart. I think that's, that's actually hurting the system, which has done a really effective job. You can, you can argue about how effective it's done, but safety of airplanes is at an all-time high. It's safer to fly on an airplane than to drive in a car. That's crazy. Yeah, but there seems like a pretty brazen pattern of behavior that, to me, seems like goes beyond unprofessionalism. I mean, they talk about how he lied to regulators. Uh, so, he, you know, he, he admits that he lied to regulators unknowingly because they changed something that he told them. He told them that the MCS operate only in extreme flight conditions, that was later changed uh, by engineers and software to operate at a lower speed that was well within the normal flight range. And then he still withheld that information and still convinced the FAA to not uh, include the MCA, MCAS in the pilot manual. Like to me, that doesn't seem like, oh, we designed a thing. It didn't work. Um, it seemed like he at different points should have been an advocate for um, that being added to the pilot manual and instead of the opposite. And that's where it seems like his behavior falls a little bit outside the realm of I was just an engineer on the job because he had chances to essentially come clean with information he knew and he chose not to. So that seems like what's, that seems like what's pretty, pretty outside the bounds of like normal 
very responsible, very ethical behavior. But when it, I think when it really rubber hits the road here, you're going to have to show that the flight test pilot officially signed off on some piece of paperwork knowing that the system was not compliant. If they signed on a system, if you signed off on a system that was compliant to the FAA regulations, you can say a lot of stuff, but that's where the reality hits. If it was compliant with the FAA regulations, and I think that it was, that I, I don't know how you're going to put somebody in prison who actually met the requirements that the FAA had dictated out to them. And, and it also makes the assumption, too, that if the FAA had known about the low speed end of the MCAS system, that they would have not found it compliant. I, I haven't heard anybody say that yet either. Uh, I think that it more evolves around having a single fault, which is the AOA, which could be evidently misassembled. Uh, that it, it more revolves around other pieces to this puzzle, but the pilot is the most visible piece. So what are they the only one? Is it, And I guess it's a question in my mind is, is this the only person that's going to be held criminally accountable or is this, this is the start of many others? Because if it's a start of many others, I can tell you right now, they're going to have a lot of engineers at Boeing quit. That would not be smart safety-wise. Yeah, but it seems like all those other engineers, if they just look, guys and, and gals, don't withhold information. If you find out something that's not right, be honest about it and be upfront about it. That seems like a pretty easy thing to thing to do because it seems like that's the standard he's being held to. He clearly withheld information. And I don't know. It seems like it's poor judgment. Yeah, you can, you can make an argument about poor judgment, sure. Uh I, that I agree with. I, I think there's there's things there's things that are worth noting to the FAA, and there's things that aren't worth noting to the FAA because they they follow and they're compliant in, in a sense of if the system meets all the FAA regulations, and I can validate that, which clearly Boeing did, and I can sign off on that. If it's outside of that realm, or it's in that real fuzzy territory of like. Yeah, it meets it, but only in these particular configurations, but not in that one. That's when you should have a discussion with the FAA. I think what I, I think if we go back and look at what all, and I'm going to talk technical for a second. The, the, the DERs and delegates for the FAA and the unit members in the ODA system that Boeing has would be signing off on a piece of paper, a, a, a legal document that says, I concur that this system performs to the FAA regulations. Bam. If you can if you can show that that was falsified, yeah, okay. Then I think you got something to stand on. Now, whether you can prosecute them criminally or not, I that's really up for debate. I think until they can show that, and they can actually falsify a document to the FAA, not a verbal discussion, but a compliance thing, then I think you're going to have a hard, and then it's just boorish behavior. And I, I, don't, I don't condone it, but it's what it feels like. This is the guy that wrote all the email that looks bad for Boeing. Well, okay, you can, people make really, people write really bad email all the time, things they shouldn't write. And he's in a position of responsibility where he, shouldn't do that. You should be smarter than that. But that doesn't send you to jail. That, that, there's the line. Right? I think you really have to show that they intentionally, maliciously lied to the FAA in a formal capacity. And until then, it's just sort of 
and abhorrent behavior. Think of it that way. Yeah, so we'll we'll link to this article. Um, this was great reporting by Dominic Gates from the Seattle Times. So we'll link to that article below, and you can read through. And there's a lot of uh, there's a lot lot to wade through in that story. So we'll we'll see how that evolves. Moving on, let's talk about British Airways. They completed their first flight with sustainable airline, uh, sustainable aviation fuel, um, and this is a exciting time for you know everyone's trying to decarbonize, right? Um, but Alan, is this going to be the first of many, or is this the first of a just kind of a tiny amount? I think it's a relatively tiny amount. Obviously, there's a lot of uh, jet A that's burned every day, and sustainable fuels don't have the quantity to really put a dent in that number. As much as is it just progressing the the development of better systems to make sustainable fuels, and particularly in the in the, in the UK where they're going renewable in terms of their the whole infrastructure in terms of wind, particularly wind turbines, like they're putting up hundreds of wind turbines to generate electricity. Does sustainable fuel become one of those things where, like in the Orkney Islands off the coast of the UK, where they have extra power that they don't know what to do with? Do you then say, okay, we can make some sustainable fuels and the extra power is just extra power. It's kind of free to us. So it lowers the cost of sustainable fuels. That's the situation you want to be in, right? That you have sort of free energy to make this stuff. Because otherwise, uh, it's easier to pump it out of the ground and make Jet A than it is to make a synthetic sustainable fuel. Yeah, so it says they reduced the CO2 emissions from a flight from London to Edinburgh by 62%. So they were 62% lower. Um, that's a lot, yeah. So that's pretty interesting. Um, you know, I, I, like you said, it, it probably comes down to cost. And like you said, if you have to store more of it to get the same energy density, um, et cetera, et cetera. But obviously this stuff has to start getting used now uh, for them to figure out, you know, a to boost demand and B to drive research and the, the for the first step is like someone's got to buy the first electric car and someone's got to make an electric you know car re recharging station and then after that then the technology okay other companies can throw their hat in the ring and get funding because if no planes making fuel what company is going to invest in manufacturing to make more of that kind of fuel right so this seems like a good step in that direction yeah because they all all those like stepping stones seem like they're starting to align and speaking of which, Chevron and Jivo have uh, committed to invest in sustainable airline fuels. So they're, you know, right in line with all this. They're going to start this this process. Um, obviously, Chevron is a very big um, fossil fuel and now diversifying into more uh, sustainable and renewable sources of energy. Um, but do you feel like these two companies are poised to really make a dent in this? Well, I, again, I think they're all trying to feel it out to see what happens in, in the marketplace. Um, in Europe, there's a little bit of a different uh, vibe that could go on. If if the European Union, which would now excludes the UK, but the UK would probably participate in it, if there's some sort of edict that you're going to use 100% sustainable fuel, then price really isn't a factor. <laughs> it's going to get built into the system. If, like in the rest of the world, uh, it has to show profitability, then I think it's a little harder, right? So they got to they got to cut the cost down. But you're going to need some. You're going to need large corporations that have the funding and the people and the wherewithal to develop these things. None of this is easy. It's very complicated. So you can't look for. This is not a Silicon Valley kind of adventure. 
uh, where you can get a couple of people in a room and start hacking on some software. And then next thing you know, you're Facebook. Uh, this is not that. This is a heavy industry, uh, distilling, refining, uh, a lot of chemistry involved. So it's just the whole thing is super expensive. And that's why uh, sustainable fuels are, are more expensive at the end because it takes so much infrastructure to do it. But um, as as it progresses, who knows? You know, I think the, the big cost of energy to create it is, is the problem. And if we can lower the cost of energy to create the fuel, yeah, it's going to become a lot more competitive, price competitive. And at that point, it may not matter, right? You can pick a Jet A or a sustainable version of it. If they're roughly the same price, yeah, it's going to give you a lot more. That's good. Yeah. And of course, the current regulations are for 50-50 of uh, petroleum jet fuel blended with um, SAF. So, you know, that's a 50% reduction for every gallon or pint or liter liter burn. So it's a good start. Um, and of course, Jivo is working on what they call these energy dense liquid hydrocarbons that they want their carbon to come from renewable energy sources when possible. And they're also committing to using wind turbines for electricity in their facilities. So, you know, they're trying to cover all bases, which is good because a lot of companies in renewable get criticized where it's like, yeah, you're doing, you're producing renewable energy, but then you're consuming all this other fossil fuel energy and carbon intensive you know, energy from, at, you know, to keep the lights on the plant on. So yeah, we're all getting smarter. It seems like figuring out the entire carbon footprint, um, not just the output. So hats off, hats off to them. So moving on to our EVTOL segment, Lilium has released a fifth generation uh, flight test, uh, well, flight test footage of their fifth generation um, vehicle. So, Alan, you can hear the, you know, you can hear the roar, which is not much a roar, maybe more like a meow from their engine. So they're definitely quieter as they're coming into to land, but uh, which is obviously one of the big parts of this, right? The smaller, um, the more numerous, but smaller uh, propellers and of course Lilium's case they have lots of ducted fans uh, they have 36 of them so the the end the, the the noise is obviously a big part if this renewable not this renewable if this air taxi vision ever comes to fruition uh, the sound is a big thing because you can't have helicopters just crushing people on the street with uh, this intense downforce wind and incredible you know loud loud uh, noises so uh, what were your thoughts on Lilium's flight? And I mean, does it look like they're continuing to forge ahead? I think so. You know, the, Lilium was one of the early players in terms of uh, press releases and getting out in the marketplace. And they, they were, weren't they pre-SPAC? I don't remember if they SPAC'd or not, but they're one of those companies that was there kind of pre-SPAC uh, that had the technology. And then it kind of got poo-pooed in some articles. Uh, and then now they're, now they're demonstrating the technology. I think the the key here is is uh, showing the technology to the to the masses, right? And the more you can lift the hood up and see what the inner workings are, the better off they're going to be. And I, I I think we're just starting to see that as an industry. Uh, Whisk did that recently when they're showing they put some videos up on YouTube from 2016 and 2017, like. We've been doing this for five, six years, fellas. This look at all the technology we have. Uh, this is not something we just created yesterday. And Joby's been in the same boat. You just haven't really seen it that much. It's just been totally quiet for a myriad of reasons. Uh, and Lillian was sort of in that same boat. Like they want to 
develop in secrecy and then have a big splash financially that everybody's going to lock into this thing. So I think the Lilium technology is cool. I'm, I'm still a little concerned about the aerodynamics, whether it's going to be efficient or not, and how much battery it's going to use to get somebody to where they want to go. And is it energy efficient or not? Um, that, that one is still a mystery. The, the, all, the, all the talk about the noise, I, I think, is almost secondary to whether the aircraft can actually perform the function. Can it get, can it, does it have the range? Can you recharge it fast enough? Those other things come way before noise. Noise, noise is a natural, natural outcome of using electric motors that you can reduce it. Awesome, that's good. But if you can't get the airplane to fly 30 flights a day like uh, Archer's talking about, then it doesn't matter. So it's a, don't you feel it's a little weird right yet, Dan, that, that some of these electric uh, vertical takeoff and landing companies haven't really figured out how to market themselves yet? It's still on the technical side, it's still kind of sheltered. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's them not putting the cart before the horse because they're just trying to get a viable certified aircraft first. I mean, it could just be order of operations, but they probably can't really afford to do it that way either because you got to have places to land. You have to have the infrastructure. You have to have demand. So it's complicated. Like they can't just probably do one thing or maybe they're counting on the industry as a whole to do some of the marketing. You know, I, I don't know. It's a, it is a good question. Did you did you see that recent video between Joby and Uber? Uh, I think it was it's in the last day or two where they put out a, a, a one of the heads of Uber was on site to watch the Joby airplane go through a little flight test. That was fascinating. The thing that was missing in it was audio uh, that they ran music when the aircraft was flying. I thought that was weird. Like what's 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 up with that? Uh, like da, 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 da. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was it. No, I don't think that was it. It was some sort of electronic <laughs> music, right? That they got off our list. Yeah. So the uh, it, it is a weird dynamic about selling a product because in the case of Joby and I think Lillian, the same thing, they're not selling you an airplane. Like, they're not selling me an airplane. Like, they're not calling up you, Dan, and say, hey, Dan, would you like to buy a $5 million electric airplane? <laughs> because, no, I actually... The answer is yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I found a credit card on the street. Let's see how much is, how big the limit is. Find out real fast. Right? What, what those aircraft companies are selling are rides. So I I think what they're saying is we don't care what you think about the airplane. We care what you think about the ride, but the service, right? But I have seen zero, and I mean absolutely zero, of what this ride looks like, like from a passenger experience point of view. When Dan and I pull up in our uh, Tesla Cybertruck and hop out and go to hop into our Joby airplane for our Uber. I'm not, yeah, I'm not ever going to. No, Cybertruck's a hideous, hideous cockroach-looking stainless steel. How about your DeLorean, right? Can we can you make a DeLorean? Can we get there that way? Yeah. They'd be buddies. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, no, I get your point. And I, I imagine what's going to happen is that they're going to outsource this part of it, right? Like you end up, end up at some point becoming a software company or the hardware company. And then, you know, when this com push comes to shove and these are ready to go, you imagine that Uber is going to partner with them or Lyft or, or any company is going to partner with them. Um, and like we handle the bookings, like we handle 
getting people to ride on these. That seems like because otherwise you've got a team of engine of aircraft engineers trying to figure out how to do ride sharing, you know, trying to be Greyhound, right? And that's a whole nother thing. Like that's what, like Boeing's not an airline. Boeing's not an airline. Boeing sells airplanes. So yeah. So then that might they might all know that already because you're right. That's a that's a whole nother business that you've got to invest in and get people and you know digital infrastructure and physical infrastructure. So yeah. And and to answer your question earlier, Lilium has gone public. Uh, their SPAC merger is complete. They're now trading uh, LILM on uh, on the stock market. And so, but with uh, the one thing to mention, we'll probably talk about this more in detail on another show, but they did not get as much money as they expected from their merger. So they expected to re- receive $830 million. They instead only got $584 million. So as you've talked about how much, you know, the vast expense of getting an EVTL to market, any aircraft to market, you need a lot of money. They lost out on about two hundred forty-six million that they were expecting to receive from this merger. So that's a big cut, you know, like 25 percent less than they thought. So we'll see how that goes. Stocks were kind of flat um, as they started trading. So um, yeah, they're so they're the next one to officially go public. Um, and there've been a couple other interesting articles recently. Uh, one by Auto Evolution, just talking about Los Angeles gearing up to be the first city in the U.S. to operate air taxis. Why do you think? LA is so gung ho to do this just because, well, I, I'll give you one reason. If you see Hollywood movie star A, B, and C taking these, that's a lot of free press. I mean, you go back, go back to your question about marketing. Hollywood movie stars are for sure going to do this. Number one, there's a lot of important people, a lot of people, a lot of influencers, a lot of beautiful people in LA. Well, this does probably make sense to help this sort of grow and get visibility pretty quick. Yeah, I I think there's a couple reasons. One is that uh, the way LA is sort of situated, uh, I I think in the airports that are around LA, let's just unwind this one second. I don't think uh, Joby is landing in the driveway of the Kardashians. And I don't think that's happening. So you're going to need some sort of centralized place where these aircraft can can take off and land. And... uh, you have to have some levels of extreme wealth to, to create places for these airplanes to take off and land. Well, LA, LA is, has that sort of uh, place for it. And you're right, Dan, I think it's a lot about uh, selling it to everybody else, right? That, that they want to put it someplace where uh, entertainers and people that are easily recognized show up and do this thing so they can then sell it in Nebraska, right? Which is, you know, where they're going to make all their money clearly. So, so, this I, I think you know, I thought it would be San Francisco because a lot of these companies are sort of north up in sort of Menlo Park area. Uh, but L.A. seems to be the place. And the other place I thought was going to be hot was Miami, that that was going to be another. And I think Miami makes a lot of sense just because it's mostly flat and there aren't a lot of tall buildings there. And it's kind of easy to get around Florida because it's flat. <laughs> There's no mountains to run into, so flying in Florida can get relatively easy, except for the thunderstorms bit. Uh, and maybe that's, that's what stopped them is the thunderstorms bit uh, and, the, and the you know three o'clock storms that roll through. That's not a good time to be flying there. But yeah, and yeah, I guess it comes back to L.A. L.A. has great weather all the time. It's kind of like San Diego. San Diego has great weather all the time. It's great to fly there, uh, and you got the ocean and the whole thing. So there is some thought into that process. Because it does seem like all of them are headed to one place. And at first it was Miami. I thought it was Miami. But now it seems L.A. is making a, a bigger play for this. That's fascinating, right? 
Yeah, and of course, this um, with LA gearing up to be the first U.S. city, that's mostly a volocopter play. Like we've talked about the volocopter being a little bit ahead as far as their um, their volo ports and stuff like that. So that's who's in the works. And of course, as these are all different aircraft, you know, Florida's a surprisingly big state. Like you don't think of it that way, but when you start talk, talking about driving, you know, north, you know, from um, what state borders? Man, I'm really hurting myself geographically. What's the north? When you get to Georgia and then you're trying to get all the way down to the Keys, I mean, it's a gigantic drive. It's like, ten, what, 10 hours or something? It's really, really long. And obviously going from the Gulf Coast to the to the East Coast is long. So you might have an EVTOL that's more suited for longer range flights really does well in, in Florida, whereas one that's more short term or more short, short uh, distance thrives in, you know, California. Of course, obviously, there's a million places to go in California, so there could still be variable um, variability. But if there's an initial workup where Volcopter is like, hey, we want 20 ports all within 40 miles of each other, there's just lots of little lily pads, that might make sense. Whereas in Florida, maybe they operate more out of small airports and they're taking you from, Tam- from Tampa to Fort Lauderdale, and that makes a lot of sense for them. For some people, you know, so I think L.A. doesn't have that data, but there is a data set on uh, small jet performance when Eclipse was in operation. And, and there was an oper- there was an operator that operated just essentially flights within Florida in a small jet. And that lasted until the, the first economic downturn. And then it, it closed up shop. So if you have that sort of if you know that, hey, the, 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 the big routes are Tampa to Miami. Yeah, those are great routes. But the previous history has shown that that can't make any money. Uh, let's go someplace else where there's a lot of cash and see how it works out and expand from there. So LA does make sense. Houston kind of makes sense too, to me, because it's also flat and it's, it's, it, it has a large expanse. So getting from one side of Houston to another is a problem. And Dallas would be the same sort of thing, but they don't, they seem to be focused on LA. So it must be a lot of uh, movie stars and famous people. It's gotta be it. Well, and you, yeah, I mean, especially, before costs come down, whether it's from scale or efficiency or whatever, you probably won't operate in the expensive markets where this is going to be a premium product. I mean, I don't know. I mean, DC here has the most restricted airspace in the world, so I don't know how that would work. But obviously, you know, Reagan takes flights every day, but you could very well see people taking this from the center of DC on top of a building over into Alexandria, you know, or getting people from the Pentagon over to the White House, for example. Like, and there's a lot of important people in D.C., a lot of wealthy people who it's hard to get three miles in D.C. during anywhere near rush hour. I mean, geographically, you can beat a car on a bike a lot of the time. It just, it just depends. You know, I, I was on my electric scooter today, went three miles across town in the morning. And if I had taken an Uber, it, it wouldn't have taken significantly longer than the 25 minutes it took me on the scooter because so many stop and goes, the traffic, I mean... It would have beaten me, but not by that big of a margin, right? So um, then you start to talk about getting across the Potomac into Virginia, and it's it's an hour, it's an hour or more, depending on the time of day, just to go a couple of miles. So yeah, you could see different uses, and like I said, I the scooter market's probably a good example because there's a bunch of different providers in every city. There's Lime, there's Spin, there's Hellbiz, there's different operators all have different models of scooters. Um, providing a similar service. And that's probably what will happen with the, these EVTOLs that, you know, maybe Lyft uses Volocopter, maybe Uber uses Joby, maybe, you know, you know, 
whatever company, you know, maybe Southwest gets into it. I'm just making this up. You know, they use Lilium. Like you just, you know, the, you know, so that seems like it probably, that's probably how that works. But you never know because Volocopter does want to control their Voloports. So at some point, maybe they're like, hey, we're running. We're going to drop our, our licensee or our partner and we're going to operate this all ourselves and do the whole thing. You never know. But it does seem like they probably... It seems like a lot of work to do all all facets of it, the tech and the hardware. That's that's the most difficult part, right? Mm-hmm. But we're still seeing progress, so that's cool. So that's going to do it for today's episode of the Struck Aerospace Engineering Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, wherever you listen. And be sure to check out the show notes uh, for more information on some of the articles we discussed here. Uh, we'll link to them in the description below. See you next week, and we appreciate you listening. Be sure to leave us a review. And till next week, uh, thanks from Alan and all of us here at the Struck Podcast. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardarrow.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.